This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. And this week we'll start off reading from the New York Jewish Week. The first article from the Jewish Week, Humor is an Angle on the Truth, Remembering the Comic Genius of Carl Reiner by Sandy Browarski. Editor's Note the comic legend Carl Reiner, who died Monday night at his home in Beverly Hills at the age of 98, spoke to the Jewish Week Sandy Borowski some years ago. We reprint the article here as a tribute to Reiner, who was part of the comedy team that created the Dick Van Dyke Show. When Carl Reiner answers the door to his Manhattan apartment and leads me to his living room, I can't help but hum the theme song to the Dick Van Dyke Show, half expecting that we'll find a sunken living room. Here there are no steps to slip on, and Mary Tyler Moore is nowhere in sight, but within seconds he makes me laugh. He makes me laugh as he has been doing for Americans for more than 50 years. Reiner has been eliciting laughs for most of his life. As a second grader in the Bronx, he had his class giggling and applauding when he put both feet behind his head and walked around the room on his hands. He learned to mimic accents and expressions early on, and would also repeat stories and routines he'd hear on the radio in the style of the performer for his friends and family. He loved the approbation of laughter and still does. Reiner is tall, energetic, and engaging, punctuating many sentences with facial exaggerations and hand movements. Jokes flow naturally. In conversation, he shifts into the role of a British butler, an aging Eastern European Jew, an African-American musician, and he talks about his life, his humor, and his memoir, My Anecdotal Life. In the book, Reiner presents his own literary variety show, retelling stories about his years acting and writing for Sid Caesar's Pioneering Your Show of Shows, playing straight man to Mel Brooks in their comic recording, The 2,000-Year-Old Man, and creating and co-starring in The Dick Van Dyke Show, which ran from 1961 to 1966, and still appears in reruns based on his own life. In short chapters with descriptive titles, My Son, the Hall of Famer, describes his showing up a day early to be honored at his alma mater, Evander Childs High School. He describes his experiences writing and directing something different, which began as busy work for his board secretary and played on Broadway and filming Where's Papa with its streaking scene in Central Park. Often he's self-effacing, offering accounts of embarrassing moments, like the time as an 18-year-old playing Shakespeare he mimicked a theater director with a stroke, not realizing that the man didn't really mean him to follow his example so exactly. The winner of 12 Emmy Awards and one Grammy, along with the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for Humor, he got his theatrical start at, at a Berkshire's adult summer camp called Alabin Acres. During the summer of 1942, he was a resident performer before joining the U.S. Armed Forces, where he worked securing our nation's freedom by touring the Pacific in an army musical entitled Shape Ahoy. Asked to define humor, he immediately responds, anything that makes you laugh. Then he continues, it's the stating of the absolute truth that everybody's thinking, but putting it in such a way that allows you to vent to laugh. Humor is a curative of the truth. It's an angle on the truth that's not readily apparent to everybody, but to those born with prisms in their head, to see that side, the bright side, the silly side, the absolute truth side that people don't want to see.
The funniest comic ever? He says there are too many to name, and then adds, in my life, it's Mel Brooks. Looking out over Manhattan, he talks about growing up in the Bronx during the Depression years and names the Murrays, Irvings, and Morrises who were his pals. He describes his bar mitzvah as a bootleg affair where he learned everything by rote held on a Thursday morning. After that, he'd be pulled into a shul in a ground-floor apartment across the street from his home to make a minion, and he recalls doing the kind of double talk he'd become known for in television, mixing words and accents so that it sounded like he was speaking another language fluently. All of his friends were Zionists who belonged to a revisionist club where they wore uniforms and he attended too. I wasn't interested in politics, he admits. I was more interested in making laughs. When he was about 15, he left the group to start taking drama classes downtown. The book is dedicated to his mother, Bessie. She was the one who had hit him with a yardstick while growing up. Not in the head, Bessie, his father would inject, but loved him well. In later years, she'd watch your show of shows and always thought they should have featured him more, even when he appeared in almost every act. He frequently makes references in conversation to his wife of decades, Estelle, whom he met at Alabin Acres, and he introduces her warmly when she joins us in the living room. They live mostly in Beverly Hills, but come to New York throughout the year. Most of the paintings in their apartment are her work, and it's an impressive collection. Also impressive is the fact that she began performing as a jazz singer at age 65, and has recorded five CDs. She used to sing in Manhattan at Michael's Pub, and now performs monthly in Los Angeles. He remembers hearing her sing at a Saturday evening jam session at Alabin Acres, and the band leader stopped playing to say, that lady should record. And 50 years later, she did. Proud husband that he is, he played a selection from her CD, Ukulele Mama, as part of his talk last week at the 92nd Street Y. The book jacket on its front cover features Reiner, circa 1960, seated before a manual typewriter with empty coffee cups, crumpled pages, and cigarette butts around him. On the back cover, he's in the same pose some 40 years later, still looking over his right shoulder, working on my anecdotal life at a computer with an empty bottle of water in the trash. He explains that now he uses the shoulder twist as a writing technique. When he can't think of a word, he turns his head sharply to the left. In his Beverly Hills home, that twist turns him so that he's looking out of a window directly at a tree. If you turn your head way to the left, it opens a passage. There's a flow of information from one side of the brain, he says, demonstrating. I've never told this before. I'm laughing. To an unseen audience, he continues, if you're sitting in a room with a window in the other direction, try it in the other direction. If the room is windowless, try looking at a picture of trees. Short of that, keep a big fat thesaurus next to you. Reiner's a busy man. In the fall, he has a children's book coming out, Tell Me a Scary Story But Not Too Scary, a line he would hear from a grandson, the son of his son, Rob. Everything can be used, he quips. He's also working on a novella about a writer struggling to finish his book. It's a book within a book that begins in the Garden of Eden. It may in part deal with the writing of the Bible, exploring Reiner's own sense that if there is a God, God is inside of everyone, that when writers get ideas and don't quite know where they come from, they come from the God within. He's also involved in an animated show for TV Land that airs in July titled The Alan Brady Show, the fictional television show on The Dick Van Dyke Show, where he'll be the voice of Brady. And he's working on a film about dogs who talk, where, there's, where he's the voice of one, and a series called Pride of the Family about lions, where he'll be the voice of the head of the family.
In the Dick Van Dyke show, Reiner made cameo appearances as Brady, the creator of the show whose writers are Rob Petrie, Van Dyke, Buddy Sorrell, Maury Amsterdam, and Sally Rogers, Rosemarie. Rob and Laura, Mary Tyler Moore, live in New Rochelle as Reiner did in those years. Their son, Richie, Larry Matthews, would now be 47. Recently, Reiner was in an awards ceremony with several of the actors. Amsterdam passed away and asked if they, if they would take part in a remake of the show, and they agreed. He wrote it, and this fall, CBS is presenting a show updating all of their lives. It flew out of me, he says of the script, noting that he knows these people so well. They are me, and I am them. And next from the Jewish Week, from the editor's desk, Charlottesville was the unmasking of the wartime president. Fighting COVID or condemning hate, Trump's instinct is to play to his base. By Andrew Silo Carroll, editor-in-chief of the New York Jewish Week. I've said this before. I don't know if Donald Trump is a white supremacist or an anti-Semite. I do know that he is good for white supremacy and anti-Semitism. And I'll add to that. I doubt the president is pro-COVID, but he couldn't have done a better job of helping spread the virus had he been on its payroll. Whether eschewing a mask, taunting governors for following his own government's advice, or proposing unproven cures, Trump has been a super-spreader by proxy. Hate, anti-Semitism, COVID. There's a link between these medical and metaphorical contagions. It is found in his press secretary's response after Trump retweeted a video showing a group of supporters in Florida, including a man who twice chants white power. Kaylee McEnany explained Trump's retweet, which he took down but for which he did not apologize. His point in tweeting out the video was to stand with his supporters who are oftentimes demonized. That's the skeleton key to Trump's presidency stoking his base, comforting the aggrieved, owning the left. This tendency is also the key to his Charlottesville remarks. His very fine people on both sides statement after the 2017 Unite the Right rally has been debated and occasionally distorted to death. Let's talk about it again because it's important. The ostensible focal point of the Unite the Right rally were attempts by the city to remove a Confederate statue. As Trump would later say, people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue of Robert E. Lee. However, the rally was organized by various far-right and white supremacist groups for other extremists, not by or for Southern heritage groups. Even the United Daughters of the Confederacy denounced what it called the hate groups that organized the rally. On August 11th, the night before the main rally, hundreds of white nationalists, some yielding tiki torches, gathered at the University of Virginia. This was the mob that chanted, White Lives Matter, and Jews will not replace us. Trump's first tweet came the next day after clashes between far-right protesters and anti-hate counter-protesters. We all must be united and condemn all that hate stands for. There is no place for this kind of violence in America. Let's come together as one. Later that day, when a car driven by a white supremacist killed a counter-protester, Trump said, We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. Many sides. 
Up to this point, Trump did not specifically condemn the racists who organized the rally, angering many observers. Trump focused on the clashes between the protesters and the counter-protesters, not the torchlight march, not the car ramming, not the racist rally. The next day, after even fellow Republicans like Florida Senator Marco Rubio called on Trump to condemn the terror attack by white supremacists, the White House tried again, saying the president said very strongly in his statement yesterday that he condemns all forms of violence, bigotry, and hatred, and of course that includes white supremacists, KKK, neo-Nazi, and all extremist groups. He called for national unity, unity and bringing all Americans together. All forms, and that includes, suggest that the anti-racist protesters, as well as the KKK and neo-Nazis, were driven by bigotry and hate, a clear equivalence. If I condemn all forms of cholesterol, and that includes the bad cholesterol, that means I also condemn the good cholesterol. Criticism of the president subsided somewhat for two days. At an August 15th press conference to discuss infrastructure, a reporter asked about his initial comments on Charlottesville. Trump said, yes, I think there's blame on both sides. If you look at both sides, I think there's blame on both sides. And I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. Again, Trump is focusing on the clashes in Charlottesville, not the racist rally nor the racist groups that organized it. In Trump's framing, the tragedy of Charlottesville was not that white supremacists gathered in force in an American college town in 2017, but the two groups of agitators fought violently in the streets. His insistence that this was a Confederate heritage event led to his most argued about comment. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Certainly, Trump's people had the time to digest the accounts by law enforcement and local officials. They had to know that the rally was a gathering of zealous white supremacists. But then, as now, whenever Trump gets close to an idea that could be embraced by a Democrat or that might alienate even a small portion of his base, whether condemning a racist video or wearing a mask, he plays almost exclusively to the Make America Great Again crowd. Typical presidents would have understood that to lead a coherent bipartisan assault on Nazis or a deadly virus would carry no political risk and might even ensure their re-election. Not Trump. I'd say he was unmasked by COVID-19, but his response to Charlottesville back in 2017 told us exactly who he is. And now we'll go over to the Times of Israel. Netanyahu ally confirms delays in West Bank annexation plan by Times of Israel staff. A confidant of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu confirmed that the Premier's plan to annex parts of the West Bank would not start on Wednesday, the original start date. The developments cast further uncertainty over whether Israel will ultimately follow through on the explosive annexation initiative, which has drawn fierce condemnations from some of Israel's closest allies. Speaking to Army Radio, Regional Cooperation Minister Ophir Akunis 
confirmed that the annexation process would not begin Wednesday, July 1st, saying that officials were still working out the final details with their American counterparts. He said he expected the annexation to take place later in July. Coordination with the American administration is not something that can be dismissed, he said. Netanyahu had aimed to start the process by July 1st, saying he wanted to begin annexing the West Bank territory in line with U.S. President Donald Trump's Mideast plan. The plan, unveiled in January, envisions bringing some 30% of the territory under permanent Israeli control, while giving the Palestinians limited autonomy in carved-up pockets of the remaining land. But Netanyahu's unilateral annexation project has come under stiff international criticism. The United Nations, the European Union, and key Arab countries have all said Israel's annexation would violate international law and undermine the already diminished prospects of establishing a viable independent Palestinian state alongside Israel. Even close allies like Britain have opposed it. In a front-page article in the Yidiot Aranot Daily, one of Israel's largest newspapers, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson wrote that as a passionate defender of Israel, he was particularly troubled by its intentions. He noted his long links to Israel, dating back to when he volunteered on a kibbutz as an 18-year-old, and his many visits since then. I profoundly hope that annexation does not go ahead. If it does, the UK will not recognize any changes to the 1967 lines, except those agreed between both parties, he said. Israel captured the West Bank from Jordan in the 1967 Six-Day War. Much of the international community considers the territory occupied land and Israel's 132 settlements there illegal. The Palestinians, who seek all of the West Bank as part of a future state, have rejected the Trump plan. Several hundred Palestinians in the Gaza Strip took part in a small demonstration July 1st, one of several that were expected in Palestinian areas. While building scores of settlements that are now home to nearly half a million Israelis, Israel has never tried to annex West Bank territory before, saying the area is disputed and that its final status should be settled through negotiations. Netanyahu has defended his annexation plan on both security and religious grounds and says the friendly Trump administration has provided a rare opportunity to redraw Israel's borders. He is eager to move forward before November's U.S. presidential election, especially with Trump's re-election prospects in question, and make sure that the coalition agreement for his new government included the July 1st date for him to introduce a plan to Parliament. The coalition deal, however, also specifies that agreement must be reached in the United States on the application of sovereignty, and U.S. officials held a series of meetings at the White House last week without publishing any decision on the matter. Beyond international opposition, Netanyahu has encountered resistance from his Blue and White governing partners. Blue and White's leader, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, said this week that July 1st's target date was not sacred and suggested that annexation can wait while the government grapples with Israel's coronavirus crisis. On Tuesday, Gantz said the Trump plan needs to be advanced correctly in bringing as many partners to this discussion from the countries of the region with international backing. He added, we must make every effort to connect with them and only then continue. And I think all the means to bring in the players have not yet been exhausted. U.S. officials have indicated they do not want to move forward with a plan unless the two leaders are in agreement. 
Hebrew media reported Tuesday that Israel was seeking changes in a proposed U.S. map for annexation and that American officials are demanding an Israeli gesture to the Palestinians as compensation for any annexation that takes place. Times of Israel reported June 3rd that the U.S. administration was highly unlikely to approve an Israeli move to unilaterally annex part of the West Bank by the July 1st date. And next, an opinion piece from the Times of Israel. Annexation is a mistake. These four people should prevent it. By Amos Yadlin. Sometimes there's a strategic rationale for a state to take costly actions in the short term in order to achieve a long-term vision. Israel's proposed annexation of 30% of the West Bank does not fit that paradigm. In fact, over the long term, it would challenge the country's fundamental principles by bringing Israel closer to a one-state reality in which Israel loses either its democratic or its Jewish character, but there are still four people who can prevent this blunder from going forward. The security risks to Israel from large-scale annexation include the potential to inflame dormant conflicts, thereby distancing Israel from more pressing threats. The reactions in the West Bank and Gaza would likely include unrest and terror, requiring the Israeli Defense Forces to engage in thwarting terror attacks, suppressing rocket fire, or quelling riots. Since Iran is currently attempting to stockpile precision weaponry along Israel's borders with Syria and Lebanon, while slowly creeping toward the nuclear threshold, diverting IDF resources and attention away from Iranian threats in order to cope with the response to annexation could have dangerous long-term consequences for Israel's national security. There's no small irony in Netanyahu, who has for years correctly sounded the alarm on the challenges posed by Iran, disrupting his own defense establishment's ability to cope with them. The potential economic costs of annexation are also significant, and they would be especially painful in light of the economic damage inflicted on Israel by COVID-19 and the ensuing lockdown. As it stands, unemployment in Israel is dropping from its peak of 24% in April 2020, but it is still believed to be around four times its pre-outbreak rate. Meanwhile, Israel's largest trading partner, the European Union, has declared that it is considering punitive measures should Israel move forward with annexation. In addition, if Israel's hostile neighbors such as Hamas or Hezbollah should seek to avenge annexation by instigating a round of fighting, the cost of a conflict would weigh heavily on already diminished government revenues. Beyond that, if annexation triggers a response that leads to the collapse of the Palestinian Authority, then Israel will find itself responsible for the basic needs of millions of Palestinians living in the West Bank, draining the national coffers further. The Diplomatic Price Nearly unanimous international condemnation of annexation is expected, indicating considerable damage to Israel's political standing as a result of annexation. While it is true that the leader of Israel's most important ally and the world's greatest superpower, the U.S., may support annexation, it is also worth considering how that could change after the U.S. presidential elections in November 2020. Democratic contender Joe Biden has made his opposition to annexation clear. If he wins, which is looking quite possible at this point, then the number of countries that support Israel's step would drop from one to zero. Biden could rescind recognition offered by the Trump administration. After all, it is hardly unusual as of late for a U.S. president to reverse the policies of his predecessor. 
for example, the Bush-Sharon letter and the Iran nuclear deal. And he may even decline to use America's geopolitical weight to defend Israel from what seems an increasingly likely prosecution by the International Criminal Court on the issue of settlements. The idea that Israel now has a political window of opportunity to annex is a short-sighted fallacy that obscures the reality of a high-risk gamble, which could conceivably result in a future democratic administration initiating a harsh response. Last but not least, annexation would damage Israel's moral standing at home and abroad. Thus far, Israel has been the side to accept the terms of proposed peace agreements, as Prime Ministers Barak and Omer have done, and the Palestinians have rejected them. Domestically, this historical truth provides Jerusalem with the peace of mind that we have done everything possible to avoid sending our sons to war. In addition, the IDF operates according to international law in contrast to the terror groups it fights against, and this provides Israel with greater legitimacy and room to maneuver when coping with security threats. Annexation is tantamount to initiating a crisis which weakens Israeli claims that it fights only because its overtures for peace have been rejected and that it does so according to international norms, undermining the legitimacy of its actions. However, the die of annexation is not yet cast. Four people can still prevent it from happening. First, President Trump, if he would like peace to prosperity to be a peace plan, rather than a cover for annexation, should seek to restrain Jerusalem's inclinations to annex West Bank territory. Trump's manifold actions demonstrating support for Israel provide him with the standing and leverage to demand that Prime Minister Netanyahu put his plans to extend Israel's sovereignty on hold. If he fails to do so, then the Arab states will lose whatever incentive they may have had to support the Trump plan. Second, alternate Prime Minister and Defense Minister Benny Gantz is tasked with protecting Israeli citizens from the nuclear and conventional threats posed by Iran, mentioned above, and so he ought to ensure that resources are not unnecessarily diverted from those important missions. Because the Trump administration seeks agreement on the issue between Israel's two Gantz's word will be a deciding factor on whether this process goes forward. Third, President Mahmoud Abbas was a party to the Palestinians' rejection of earlier peace proposals, but if he would like to save the possibility of a future state for his people, then he would be well advised to halt annexation. Abbas can do so with a single phone call to Washington. By informing the Trump administration that the PA is willing to negotiate with Israel in reference to earlier peace initiatives, including but not limited to Trump's own peace to prosperity, Abbas would provide the White House with adequate reason to put the brakes on annexation plans. Fourth, Prime Minister Netanyahu is leading Israel as it faces unprecedented security threats and a dismal economy, and he will likely make the country's problems worse if he goes ahead with annexation. If Netanyahu was searching for his legacy as this longest-serving Prime Minister of Israel, the dangers inherent in large-scale annexation indicate that he ought to keep looking. In contrast, initiating a policy to separate from the Palestinians would bring an end to the conflict, though it would be far more difficult and time-consuming, would be a historical step for which future generations of Israelis would be grateful. Israel's goal should be to build and maintain a state that is democratic, Jewish, secure, and morally just. Taking steps that could further entangle us with the Palestinians, elicit a costly response, and give the coup de grace to President Trump's peace plan hardly seems to further any of those aims. 
Instead, Israel should seek to advance President Trump's peace plan by calling for a return to the negotiating table. If Israel makes public overtures in good faith to end the conflict on reasonable terms, and they are once more rebuffed by the Palestinians, then Israel will have greater legitimacy in seeking to demarcate its borders in a manner that is independent of a Palestinian veto, but coordinated with a broad coalition of allies. Amos Yadlin, retired Major General, a former head of Israeli military intelligence, and one of the country's best-known defense and foreign policy experts, is Executive Director of the Nonpartisan Institute for National Security Studies. And next from the Times of Israel, another opinion piece. It's not annexation, it's reunification. Israelis living in Judea and Samaria have spent too many years, far too many years, living apart from the rest of the Jewish state. By Gerald Filitti, human rights attorney. As Israel prepares to extend its rightful sovereignty over Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, we bear a historic and moral responsibility to accurately call this event what it is. Reunification. Israel is reuniting families, communities, and the Jewish people. It is reuniting with its history, which stretches back thousands of years. It is reunifying the traditions and cultures that have survived and even thrived through adversity, animosity, and the horrors of countless wars. Judea and Samaria have always been a part of the land of Israel. The legal reality is that the modern state of Israel has always had sovereign rights over all of Judea and Samaria, as well as Gaza and eastern Jerusalem. The Balfour Declaration, November 2, 1917, announced support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in an area then referred to as Palestine, which was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. The San Remo Resolution, April 25, 1920, resulted from a conference after World War I to formulate a peace treaty with the Ottoman Empire. Among other things, the San Remo Resolution created a mandate for Palestine, formalized on July 4, 1922 by the League of Nations, administered by the British with the Jewish people as beneficiaries of a sacred trust. The territory subject to the Mandate of Palestine was specifically and intentionally approved for the purpose of becoming the Jewish national home. The Mandate, incorporated into Article 80 of the United Nations Charter, October 10, 1945, includes Judea, Samaria, Gaza, and eastern Jerusalem. On May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion proclaimed the establishment of Israel in accordance with the principle of international law known as uti positetis juris, as you possess under the law. The borders of the state of Israel conformed with the territorial limits of the mandate for Palestine as they existed at the time. As the International Court of Justice has explained, by becoming independent, the new state acquires sovereignty with the territorial base and boundaries left to it by the administrative boundaries of the colonial power for the nascent state of Israel. This included Judea, Samaria, as well as Gaza. The day after Israel declared its independence, it was attacked by five Arab countries. As a result of that war, Judea and Samaria, Gaza and eastern Jerusalem were wrested away from Israel. The territorial integrity of Israel was violated, a situation that was not corrected, until the defensive war of 1967, when Israel regained the territory it had promised, it had been promised under the mandate for Palestine. 
the territorial integrity of Israel was, for the most part, restored. Political reality, however, mostly resulting from an oppressive international campaign to miscast these parts of Israel as occupied territories, led to a series of decisions that resulted in the full exercise of sovereignty being held in abeyance with regard to Judea and Samaria, Gaza and eastern Jerusalem. However, Israel has maintained complete security control of Judea and Samaria, which may soon be reunified. Israeli civil law has governed its citizens living there who also enjoy Israeli economic, educational, and welfare benefits. The history, nature, and character of Israelis living in Judea and Samaria have always been Israeli, but they have spent far too many years living apart from the rest of the Jewish state. They need and deserve to be reunified with their country. Much as West Germany and East Germany reunified at the end of the Cold War, it is well past the time to reunify Judea and Samaria with the rest of Israel. Its residents are part of one culture and one people, one family. And like families, they have a basic, if not fundamental, right to stay together. If, as expected, the Israeli government exerts full sovereignty over all or parts of Judea and Samaria, it isn't an act of annexation. It's an act of reunification, bringing together individuals and families who have been artificially separated for no good reason, but always subject to Israel's sovereignty. Annexation is a proclamation of sovereignty outside of a state's domain, which is not the case here. Reunification is the recognition that the Jewish family has been separated far too long. Reunification is an act of love, finally bringing that family back together. Gerald Felitti is a New York City-based human rights attorney. He serves as senior counsel at the Lawfare Project, the Jewish Civil Rights Litigation Fund and Think Tank. He previously worked as a litigator in private practice for over 15 years and has broad experience in commercial and complex litigation across a wide variety of practice areas, both at state and federal courts. And next from the Times of Israel, El Al grounds all flights amid labor dispute, financial crisis by Times of Israel staff. Israel's national airline, El Al, has stopped flights altogether, canceling two passenger and four cargo flights that were scheduled for Wednesday, the Globe's Daily reported, after labor talks blew up between the pilots' committee and management. Tensions at the airline have been high after it slashed the vast majority of its workforce and dipped into pension funds to stay afloat amid the coronavirus crisis. The airline is seeking a government bailout to save it from insolvency and collapse. According to Ynet News site, Wednesday's flights were canceled after negotiations between Pilots Committee representative Nia Ruveni and airline CEO Gonan Usishkin ended without a resolution Tuesday evening. Ruveni reported, uh, reportedly said that El Al was not keeping to labor agreements made with the pilots during the coronavirus pandemic and that the airline's management was unable to reach agreements with the employees, refuses the government's generous bailout offer of financing, and is unable to lead the company at this time. The pilots then refused to staff Wednesday's flights, with the airline's management reportedly responding that if they would not fly, they would be transferred to other active positions in the company, with many of them needing to be furloughed as a result. The Globe's Financial Daily reported that Usishkin then ordered all planes to return to Israel, even those that were on the ground in the middle of a multi-stop route. The newspaper said the move was a step toward a total shutdown of operations. The company cannot continue to bleed and has come to the conclusion that it is better to stop flights than to lose money on flights it operates, 
a Histradut labor union official told Globes. Globes reported that cargo activity for the airline has decreased because other airlines are now able to carry more goods on passenger flights. In addition to the fact that El Al, like all carriers globally, has been hit by the economic crisis created by the coronavirus pandemic, which has led to restrictive steps, including halting flights and curbing arrivals of foreign tourists and visitors. A quarterly report for January to March issued late Tuesday showed $140 million in losses for the company in the first quarter of 2020 versus $55 million in losses for the same period last year. Revenue was down to $320 million for the quarter, a drop from $428 million last year. The airline has prolonged the suspension of scheduled commercial flights until the end of July, but had said it would continue to use its aircraft for cargo and occasional passenger flights. In Israel, those, are, uh, those who are allowed to enter must go through a two-week period of self-quarantine to ensure they are not carrying the virus, and on Monday the European Union left Israel off its list of countries for which travel restrictions have been lifted. As the coronavirus hit, El Al halted flights to China and then canceled all of its commercial flights since April. The firm has put 80% of its 6,303 workers on unpaid leave, cut management salaries by 20%, halted investments, and signed accords for the sale and leaseback of three Boeing 737-800s. And next from the Times of Israel, court convicts Israeli for saying it's okay to kill cop during settlement raising by Jacob Magid. The Lode District Court on Wednesday convicted an Israeli man from a Flashpoint Northern West Bank settlement of inciting violence after he wrote a social media post claiming there would be no religious transgression involved in killing a police officer during the demolition of a Jewish home. The court accepted an appeal from state prosecutors and overturned a 2019 decision that found Nahum Shalom Ariel not guilty on charges of inciting violence and insulting a public servant. After security forces raised a number of illegal structures in his settlement of Yitar in 2014, a resident of the town wrote in an online community forum that she supported throwing rocks at police officers carrying out such demolitions, even if it would lead to their deaths. There is no halachic or Jewish legal problem in killing a soldier during an overnight demolition, Ariel responded. He invoked a biblical law relating to property owners who kill thieves during a nighttime robbery whose actions are seen as a form of self-defense and do not subsequently receive the death penalty over the killing. As for the charge of insulting a public servant, the court convicted Ariel based on a later post on Facebook in which he identified the officer involved in the demolition, posted his picture, and called him a villain and religious dog. In accepting the state's appeal, the panel of judges wrote that Ariel's statements were not a mere expression of opinion, but rather an argument that justifies killing a soldier. These words cannot be interpreted in any other way except as a call to violence, and the real possibility that this call will lead to violence being carried out is clear. A year ago, the Petatikva Magistrates Court ruled that one could not argue that Ariel, in his statements, was calling on others to target soldiers, just that there is no religious prohibition against it. Moreover, the court agreed with the defense's position that the suspect, then 26 years old, uh, 26 years old was not a religious authority and that, therefore, there is no weight to his remarks. And now we'll go over to Jewish Telegraphic Agency for more news. 
and from Israel, four reasons why Israel's West Bank annexation plans aren't happening July 1st, or by the time you hear this, didn't happen July 1st. And this is by Gabe Freeman. Since April, all eyes following the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have been glued to July 1st. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu had negotiated the date into his government coalition deal with his rival Benny Gantz. On July 1st, as stipulated in the agreement, Netanyahu could put the topic of annexing the West Bank, a move that would have enormous political repercussions well beyond the Middle East, up for a vote in his cabinet or in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Here's a guide to what West Bank annexation, a move to apply Israeli sovereignty to Jewish settlements that Netanyahu has long desired, would mean. Tuesday, Netanyahu signaled that nothing big will happen July 1st. After meeting with White House envoy Avi Berkowitz and U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Freeman, Netanyahu said they spoke about the question of sovereignty, which we are working on these days and we will continue working on in the coming days. With that, the anticipation that had been building for months, or some could argue for over a year, during which Netanyahu promised annexation in not one or two but three election campaigns, dissipated. The coming days takes us into an indeterminate future. This doesn't mean that annexation in full or some other form won't ever happen. In fact, Netanyahu has floated the idea of annexing just a few large settlement blocks close to July 1st to try to appease all sides. Still missing the July 1st date is symbolic of how fraught the process has become. Here are the reasons why it hasn't come together the way that Netanyahu had hoped. The U.S. team is uneasy. Tuesday's meeting was just one of several that Netanyahu has had over the past few months with the U.S. Middle East peace team anchored by Jared Kushner, Friedman, and the 31-year-old Berkowitz. The team's message has been straightforward for months, slowed down the process. That's despite the fact that the Trump administration's own peace plan released in January gives Israel the green light to add West Bank lands to its map in a future two-state solution with the Palestinians. The Palestinians would get about 70% of the West Bank's territory and Israel would annex the rest. Some have speculated that the holdup is due to geographic specifics or which West Bank settlements the U.S. will approve annexing. The U.S. administration has, been, uh, has also been tied up with responding to the coronavirus crisis, something that Kushner has also spent time on and is wary of getting involved in a controversial move at the same time. There's also the fact that Palestinians have outright rejected the Trump plan, which could be weighing on the U.S. team. In addition, the Israeli army reportedly has been kept completely out of the loop of the process, giving rise to anxieties about a possible bungled security response. Whatever the reason for the delay, it looks like Netanyahu is deferring to President Donald Trump and his team, which is unusual. In previous peace negotiations, the United States usually let the Israelis take the lead in setting parameters. In the 2013-14 negotiations, when a team led by then-Secretary of State John Kerry put forward detailed proposals, Netanyahu's government pushed back forcefully. Gantz is uneasy. There's another potential reason that the U.S. team has shown reservations. They could want the full support of Benny Gantz, now Israel's defense minister, but also alternate prime minister. 
According to the coalition agreement, Gantz is scheduled to rotate into the prime minister role in a little over a year. He now represents the center-right in Israeli politics. The Times of Israel reported Tuesday that the U.S. appears to be conditioning the advancement of the annexation on Gantz's backing, in addition to support by Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi, like Gantz, a former Israeli Defense Forces leaders, uh, leader, is part of Gantz's Blue and White Party. Gantz has said he supports the Trump peace plan, which involves annexation, but only if the idea gains wider support than it currently has. European politicians have threatened sanctions on Israel if it follows through, and Arab countries have warned that the move would cause disastrous unrest in the region. Yosef Al-Otaiba, the United Arab Emirates ambassador to the United States, has written that annexation would also destroy the relationships that Netanyahu has been working hard to build in the Arab world. I believe that the Trump plan is the right political and security framework to be promoted in the state of Israel, Gantz said in an interview with Ynet on Tuesday, but this needs to be done correctly in bringing back as many partners to this discussion from the countries of the region with international backing. We must make every effort to connect with them and only then continue, and I think all the means to bring in the players have not yet been exhausted. The Palestinians could be willing to talk if annexation is next. The Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, has not been happy about the annexation rumors. If Israel follows through with its plan, the PA said it will declare its own state. It has already reneged on security cooperation with Israel and even stopped taking tax money held for them. All signs pointed to a historic low in Israeli-Palestinian relations. However, in a striking reversal, the AFP news agency reported that the PA is willing to come back to the negotiating table, something it hasn't done since 2014, if Israel drops the annexation idea. The report claims that the Palestinian authorities sent a letter to the so-called Quartet, the diplomatic grouping of the United States, the United Nations, the European Union, and Russia, saying it was ready to resume direct bilateral negotiations where they stopped. The AFP could not discern when the letter was sent, though. The coronavirus is raging in Israel. This is Gantz's other point. The coronavirus has made a comeback in Israel, and he thinks the government should prioritize dealing with that first. In the early days of the virus, Netanyahu and his, and his government were praised for their quick and effective quarantine shutdown. In recent weeks, however, Israel has relaxed restrictions and reopened workplaces and schools and seen a spike in COVID-19 cases. On Tuesday, the health ministry confirmed over 700 new cases that had been identified in the past 24 hours, the second highest amount recorded in a day there since the start of the pandemic. Israeli reports claim that the ministry is pushing for curfews in dozens of cities to curb the spread of disease. Netanyahu has disagreed with Gantz on the topic. We have serious issues to discuss, Netanyahu said Tuesday, so serious they can't even wait until after the coronavirus passes. And next from JTA, for Orthodox groups, the Supreme Court's ruling on aid to religious schools is a big win, by Shira Hanau. For Orthodox Jewish advocacy groups, the last day of the U.S. Supreme Court's 2020 session brought a big win. On Tuesday, the High Court handed a school voucher, handed school voucher proponents a victory in ruling that a state-run scholarship program funded by tax-deductible gifts could not exclude religious schools. 
The court split 5-4 in the Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue case, with Chief Justice John Roberts providing the swing vote by joining the conservative justices. A state need not subsidize private education, Roberts wrote, but once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious. This case was significant for Orthodox Jewish advocacy groups that have fought alongside Christian groups for expanded state aid to parochial schools. For most Orthodox families, parochial schools are considered an expensive necessity, and both the Orthodox Union and Agudath Israel, two major Orthodox organizations, filed briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs. Over the past decade, the Orthodox Union's advocacy work has spearheaded the creation or expansion of many state aid programs to support parental choice in education. Alan Fagan, executive vice president of the Orthodox Union, said in a statement applauding the ruling. Today's strong ruling from the Supreme Court solidifies the legal basis for these programs and bolsters their long-term benefits for the Jewish community and other faith communities. Agudath Israel has played a leading role in advocating for programs that make it easier for parents to choose private and religious schools. Rabbi A.D. Motzen, Agudath Israel of of America's National Director of State Relations, said in a statement, Today's ruling endorses Agudah's longtime position that states may not bar families from using state aid at the school of their choice simply because they choose a religious option. The case in which the Montana Supreme Court had ruled that a scholarship program funded by tax-deductible donations had to be dismantled because scholarships used for religious schools would violate the the state constitution's no-aid clause was viewed as a proxy in the fight over school vouchers. School vouchers are programs through which states allow parents to use taxpayer money to pay for tuition at private schools, most of which are religious in the United States. Critics of no-aid clauses, also known as Blaine Amendments, have cited their origins in arguing against their enforcement. The amendments, which were rooted in anti-Catholic sentiment, were added to state constitutions in late 19th century to prohibit the use of state funds for religious private schools. It's unclear whether and how the ruling will affect Jewish schools in the short term. The ruling does not compel states to offer voucher programs and New York and New Jersey, home to the country's largest Orthodox Jewish communities and most Orthodox schools, do not permit vouchers. Lawmakers there are unlikely to create voucher programs which are favored by political conservatives. Still, the case matters because it nudges open the door for state funding to flow more often to religious schools. It follows a 2017 case in which the court ruled that a church could not be excluded from receiving government benefits because of its status as a religious organization. If you wanted to boil down the key contribution of the opinion, it's the application of the rule from 2017 to schools, said Michael Helfand, Associate Dean for Faculty and Research at Pepperdine University's Caruso School of Law. Ultimately, it nudges the ball down the road in terms of the ability of schools to get equal treatment. That is increasingly the, uh, increasingly the agenda for Orthodox groups. Fagan of the Orthodox Union told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency last week that school choice could become one of the most important civil rights issues of the next decade. Private schools can already receive public funding for some services, including busing and textbooks, 
that are extended to all students. Many students who attend yeshivas in New York City ride buses paid for by the city. But the broader, the broader pot of taxpayer funds goes to public schools and the students they educate, leaving families and religious groups to fund private schools. Receiving additional state funding can be a double-edged sword for the private schools. Some states require students whose education is subsidized by vouchers to take state exams, with consequences flowing to schools whose students fall short. That arrangement could be complicated for Orthodox advocates who have fought against oversight of yeshivas in New York City. In the Espinosa case, one Jewish group filed a brief supporting the original decision by the Montana Supreme Court. The Montana Association of Rabbis argued that the scholarship program violated the free exercise clause by using taxpayer money to pay for religious education. The group also noted that the only religious schools in Montana were Christian, meaning that the program would effectively privilege Christianity over other religions. And next from JTA, becoming a Rebetzin. What it's like to come out as transgender when you're married to the rabbi by Josephine Dolston. Samantha Zarin headed home from a Yiddish class she had taught as part of her synagogue's adult education program on the evening of December 19th and knew her life was about to change. That evening, the 775 families at Temple Emmanuel would be getting a message that she knew would surprise some of the people she had gotten to know since joining the community three and a half years earlier. Over the past years, Sam has been exploring Sam's gender identity, read a message sent to the congregation from Samantha and her wife, Rachel. This has been a journey for both of us, full of introspection, learning, and growth. Through this journey, we have come to realize that although Sam was raised as a boy, she is in fact a woman, and she is ready to begin living her life publicly as such. The email marked the culmination of a years-long process in Zarin's life, a rebirth almost from the gender identity in which she had been raised to the full expression of the one she had come to understand had always been inside her. It is also significant, a significant moment for American synagogues. Rachel Zarin is the associate rabbi at Temple Emmanuel, a conservative congregation in Providence, Rhode Island. Samantha Zarin had looked into whether there were any other spouses of congregational rabbis who transitioned whom she could contact for support. She wasn't able to find any. The 33-year-old Yiddish and music teacher and poet had already shaved her beard, grew out her hair, and come out as transgender to her wife, family, and close friends. Now she would announce herself as a Rebetzin. The rabbi spouse is a very public figure, and everywhere I go in our community, people know who I am, Zarin said. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek to say there are eyes everywhere. But there really are, whether I go to the gym or I'm at the grocery store. Rabbi spouses occupy high-profile roles in the Jewish community. Traditionally, the rabbi's wife, or Rebetzin, would not only cook for Shabbat and holiday dinners, but teach classes and offer advice to the women of the congregation. That has changed in the non-Orthodox world where people of all genders can now become rabbis. But the role of a rabbi spouse remains a prominent role. 
said surely Robin Schwartz, a historian and the incoming chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary. It's certainly true that rabbis are public figures, and there's this kind of sociological term of rabbis being symbolic exemplars. They're supposed to live out the values that everyone else in theory is aspiring to live toward, and often the rabbi's family could get caught up to that set of expectations, said Schwartz, who had done research on the role of Rebetzin. Because of all this, Zara knew that her coming out process needed to happen carefully. On the one hand, she knew that acceptance of transgender people outside the Orthodox world has become widespread. The Reform, Reconstructionist, and Conservative movements all adopted resolutions supporting the full inclusion of transgender people in Jewish communities in the past five years, and transgender people, like other members of the LGBTQ community, are gaining greater visibility and increasingly taking on leadership roles in synagogues and other community institutions. On the other hand, Zara knew her transition ceased to be a private matter because of her family's role in the community. When I came out as transgender as a woman, then all of a sudden that meant that one of the rabbis of this community, who is a woman, is now married to a woman, and that's a big deal, she said. So in a sense, when I came out as trans, I was coming out as myself, as a woman, and forcing my wife along with me. And for that reason, it had to be a dialogue with my wife about when we would do this and also with the leadership of the synagogue. A message to the congregation shared Zarin's new name and pronouns and said congregants may also notice changes to Sam's clothing and appearance. But in order to maintain privacy, the couple also asked congregants not to ask them personal questions or offer unsolicited advice. As a rabbinic family, the line between public and private is frequently blurred, but it was important to maintain some privacy, Rachel Zarin said. The lines of what is my public life are very different than for most professionals in the sense that many aspects of my family are public life, she said. Pre-pandemic times, we had people over for Shabbat dinner and showing what we do in our home to community members is part of my role as a rabbi, and I embrace that, but there are still boundaries. Samantha Zarin's coming out was many years in the making. Raised as a boy, she never felt drawn to typically masculine things. With time, she also started feeling uncomfortable with her gender in general. For my whole life, everything I said, everything I did, everything I wrote, everything I did in my life was always under the fear that I would be perceived as too feminine, she said. Zarin never considered that she might be transgender because the image she had in her mind of transgender women was one riddled with stereotypes. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.